The sage said, Humanity, my friend, has been circling for centuries around that invisible wall that hides the future. Without ever succeeding in crossing it, or to see what is happening on the other side, despite its infinite curiosity. Maybe it should be so. Maybe we shouldn't complain about this. Who knows if man is not yet ready to see the things that lie beyond today. Imagine the terror, the bewilderment, the discouragement that would take hold of us if we glimpsed our destiny. We would fall into despair. Once man is wiser, more serene, stronger, his senses will be so sharpened that they will be given to see, at last, what is behind the enigmatic wall. The doctor continued, Moreover, this wall is not as impenetrable as it is presumed. There are cracks and crevices where one can peek out and glimpse something. In fact, prophets, visionaries, and pythonesses have glanced at it. Because the unconscious and the conscious are linked by a faint passage, certain privileged beings may venture into it and glimpse with more or less certainty the vast architectures of the future. Like watching from a very high balcony, they can only sense the labyrinth of streets and palaces of the city in darkness. Hello, dear listeners of Tres Cuentos, the bilingual podcast dedicated to the literary, historical, and traditional narratives of Latin America. I am Carolina Quiroga Stoltz, and today we meet again with the much-admired Mexican writer Amado Nervo. The initial fragment was taken from Nervo's fiction tale, The Sixth Sense. For those who wish to read the full text in Spanish, I'm leaving the link in the transcript. While looking for a story to close the season on fantastic Latin America, I thought it would be great to find something that would connect us with the holidays. I was lucky because in a digital anthology, I found several stories by Amado Nervo, and among them, a Christmas tale that he dedicated to his niece. Although I found several versions of the same anthology, I have to confess that the best in terms of easy reading is the one you will find on the website Descubre Lima, discoverlima.com. This site is the result of an effort of the municipality of Lima in Peru to bring people closer to literature. There you can download several books by Latin American authors. I will leave the link in case you are curious. Today's story, The Fallen Angel, was translated by Alexa Jeffress, and it comes to us in the voice of the Mexican-American storyteller and musician, Valentina Ortiz Pandolfi. But I will tell you more about her in the comments. On the other hand, as we have done the past two seasons, today we close this cycle with an interview with the academic Matthew David Goodwin, who has worked in recent years in the promotion of speculative Latino descendant literature in the United States. 
finally, I want to congratulate Allison in Vermont, Hillary in Maryland, Marco Antonio in Rhode Island, Cesar in North Carolina, and Tara in Florida, who have claimed their literary gift for this holiday season. An angel falls from the heavens with such bad luck that he gets hurt and ends up needing the piety of a child to heal. The little one takes him to meet his family, and as the angel grows more fond of the children and they of him, together they will have to figure it out how they can live together for eternity. The Fallen Angel by Amado Nervo, translated by Alexa Jeffress and read by Valentina Ortiz. A Christmas story dedicated to my niece, Maria de Los Angeles. There was once an angel that spinning too much on a twilight moon soon with violets lost his footing and fell pitifully to the earth. His bad luck would have it that instead of landing on cool grass, he hit a jagged rock in such a shape and form that the shy angel broke a wing, his right wing, it would seem. He lay there, spread eagle and bleeding. Although he screamed for help, given that it is not typical for anyone on earth to understand the language of angels, nobody came to his rescue. As he lay there, a boy who was returning from school passed by, and the angel's good luck began. Since children do tend to understand the angelic language, though much less so in the 20th century, the boy, at first surprised and then compassionate, approached the miserable angel and extended his arm to help him stand. Angels do not weigh much, and the boy's light force was more than enough for the angel to help himself to rise on his feet. His savior offered him his arm, and then the rarest spectacle could be seen, a boy leading an angel along the paths of this world. The angel limped pitifully, and of course, what happens to those who never walk barefoot also happened to him. The slightest pebble pinched his feet horribly. His appearance was pathetic. With his painfully folded broken wing and his shimmering feathers stained with blood and dirt, the angel evoked compassion. With each step, he let out a cry. His marvelous snowy feet began to bleed, too. I cannot go on, he told the boy. And the boy, who had a bit of common sense, responded to the angel as an equal, as he had from the beginning. What you need is a pair of shoes. Let's go to my house. I'll ask my mom to buy you some. And what are these shoes you mentioned? the angel asked. Look here, the boy answered, showing his. They are something that I break often and that cost me a good scolding. Am I supposed to put on something so ugly? Of course. 
or you won't walk. Let's go home. Mom will rub you with arnica and give you some shoes there. But I cannot walk any further. Carry me. Will I be able to? I think so. And the boy lifted his companion into the air and sat him on his shoulder, just as a small St. Christopher would have done. Thank you, sighed the wounded angel. This is much better. It's true I don't weigh much, right? It's just that I'm really strong, the boy replied, with a certain pride and not wanting to confess that the celestial bundle was lighter than one full of feathers. Meanwhile, they approached the house, and I assure you that the spectacle of a child carrying an angel in his arms, the opposite of what occurs in religious images, was no less outlandish than before. When they arrived at the house, a few curious children followed them. The men, very busy with their business, and the women, gossiping around fountains in the plazas, did not even notice that an angel and a boy passed by. Only a poet who wandered around that area surprised, locked eyes with them, and smiling, sanctimoniously followed them for a good distance with his eyes. Then he walked away lost in thought. The mother's piety was profound when her boy presented his broken-winged companion. Poor thing, the good woman exclaimed. Your wing must hurt a lot, eh? The angel, feeling her poke around the wound, let out a harmonious lament. <laughs> Since he had never known pain, he was more sensitive to it than the mortals. The charitable woman swiftly bandaged his wing, and to tell the truth, it took a great deal of work, because the wing was big and there was not enough cloth. Feeling more comfortable, and now far from the rocks on the path, the angel could stand and stretch his slender stature. His beauty was marvelous. His translucent skin appeared illuminated by soft interior light, and his eyes, of a deep blue with incomparable transparency, looked in such a way that every glance produced ecstasy. The shoes, Mom. That's what's missing. Maria and I can't play with him until he has shoes, the boy said. And that is what interests him more than anything, playing with the angel. Maria, his sister, who had just come home from school and did not tire of contemplating their visitor, was most interested in his feathers. Those giant feathers, never seen before. Feathers of a bird of paradise, a heraldic quetzal, a chimera, that covered the angel's wings. So much so that she couldn't contain herself, and she deviously and flatteringly approached the wounded heavenly figure and whispered to him, Tell me, would it hurt if I plucked one of your feathers? I want it for my hat. Maria! the mother angrily exclaimed, although she didn't fully understand their language. But the angel, with the most beautiful smile, responded to her, 
extending his healthy wing. Which would you like? Oh, this shiny one, said the girl. Well, take it. And he gracefully pulled it right out and offered it to his new friend, who captivated began to contemplate it. Not a single shoe would fit the angel. His feet were very small, elongated, in an exquisitely aristocratic form, incapable of conforming to American boots, the only kind available in the town. This caused him tremendous pain, even more than when he was barefoot. Finally, the young girl had an idea. Let's bring him some sandals. I saw Saint Raphael in them in the paintings of his journey with the young Tobias, and they didn't seem to bother him at all. The angel said that, in fact, some of his friends used them to travel on land, but that they were made of a very fine material, richer than gold, and were adorned with precious gems. Saint Crispin, the good Saint Crispin, made them. Well, here, the girl observed, you'll have to settle for some less precious ones and leave the saints alone if you see them. At last, with his sandals and sufficiently restored from his suffering, the angel could come and go throughout the whole house. It was adorable to watch him play with the children. He was like a great blue bird, a little feminine and with a lot of feathers, and even in his left-footed limping, he showed grace and dignity. He could finally move his wounded wing, and he opened and closed both wings with smooth movements and a silky sound fanning his friends. He sang admirably, and he told stories more beautiful than any invented by a son of man. He never became angry, and he almost always smiled, and every now and then he felt sad. His face, which was beautiful when he smiled, was incomparably more beautiful when he was pensive and melancholic. In that state, he acquired a new expression that the faces of angels never had. It was one that could be seen on Nazarene's face, who, according to tradition, rarely smiled and often cried. This expression of dignified sadness was, perhaps, the only thing that the angel carried along his path on land. How many days went by like this? The children could not count them. The company of angels and the familiarity with fantasy have the gift of elevating us to superior planes where we are exempt from the laws of time. The fully recovered angel could fly now, and in their games he delighted the children, launching himself into the air with supreme grace. He cut them fruit from the highest trees and sometimes he carried them both in his arms as he flew. 
Those flights that produced the greatest joy for the children profoundly alarmed their mother. Don't let them fall inadvertently, Señor Ángel, the mother cried. I admit, I don't like such dangerous games. But the angel laughed, and the children did too, and the mother ending up laughing also, seeing the agility and strength with which the angel held them in his arms, and the infinite gentleness with which he placed them on the grass of the garden. One might say he learned from the guardian angel. You are very strong, Señor Ángel, the mother said with surprise. And the angel, with a certain infantile and innocent superiority, replied, so strong that I could free a star from its orbit. One afternoon, the children found the angel sitting on a stone bench near the orchard wall with an even deeper sadness than when he was sick. What's wrong? they asked in unison. I am, he responded. I am healthy, and now there is no excuse for me to stay with you all. They are calling me from above, and I must go. You're leaving? Never, the girl replied. And what am I to do when they summon me? Well, don't go. Impossible. There was a long pause full of anguish. The children and the angel cried. Suddenly the girl, more inclined to making her case, said, There's a way for us to avoid separating. What? The angel asked anxiously. Bring us with you. Yes, very good, asserted the young boy clapping. And in the divine days, the three began to dance around like crazy. However, after getting carried away, the girl remained pensive and murmured, But what about our mother? Ah, yes, the angel corroborated. What about your mother? Our mother, the boy suggested, won't know a thing. We will leave without telling her. And when she is sad, we will come to console her. It'd be better to take her with us, said the girl. That is perfect, the angel affirmed. I'll come back for her. Magnificent. Are you sure? We're sure. Golden drops fell fantastically as the evening sunset. The angel gathered the children in his arms, and in one single leap, he sprung toward the luminous blue with them. Just then, the mother reached the garden and tremulously watched them soar away. The angel, despite the distance, seemed to grow. He was so translucent that she could see the sun through his wings. The mother, witnessing the miraculous spectacle, could not even scream. She was bewildered, seeing that ineffable group fly toward the sunset flames. But later, when the angel returned to the garden for her, the good woman was filled with ecstasy.
Very well, let's return from heaven, from where more than a single angel may look down with curiosity and wonder if perhaps there will be another boy or girl to play with. And speaking of dreaming, let me tell you that Tres Cuentos team plans to make several changes in hopes to increase our connection with our audience, to bring more diverse stories and authors, and in general bring Latino-Latina descendant literature to more ears. This will take us several months of planning. So, if you are subscribed, you will know firsthand what is coming next, and you can support us in the relaunch. Well, it's time to talk about today's voice, Valentina Ortiz. She speaks the ancient Aztec words as well as the modern stories of Mexico. She has been on stage since she was six years old. As an actress, a musician, and as a storyteller, she takes her stories to schools, assembly halls, parks, and theaters in Mexico, the U.S., and other parts of the world. She has published four books, and produced four records with her original stories and music. She now deeply enjoys multilingual storytelling, Spanish, Nahuatl, English, and French. Besides stories, her other passion is music, percussion instruments of the world. She has been a drummer and composer for over 30 years, participating in many Afro-Latino bands and playing in her own alternative projects. To find more about her work and to watch some videos and listen to some of her songs, you can check her website, valentinastoryteller.com. Today, unlike the past eight episodes, we will not devote much time to the life of Amado Nervo. Because in episode 41, The Last War, you will find the biography of the Mexican writer. I will just add something that I found in the digital newspaper El Financiero that I think is interesting because it speaks a little of Nervo's ability to predict the future. Eduardo Bautista tells us in the article Amado Nervo, the poet of love who became the first idol of Mexico, that his short and simple writing made him loved and admired by his readers. But even more interesting is what Nervo himself said about this style. In the future, people will have less and less time to read, and that's why the shortest literature will be the most remembered. And guess what, friends? I believe Nervo was right. Now, 100 years later, we know how to communicate with emojis, photos, tweets, and the like. And the result is that sentences, paragraphs, and chapters intimidate many readers. So I hope that our program's initiative to bring literature to your ears will fit into that format of a portable, short, and enjoyable literature. Without further ado, it's time to introduce today's interviewee. 
Matthew David Goodwin is an assistant professor in the Chicano Chicana Studies Department at the University of New Mexico. His research is centered on Latinx speculative fiction, in particular how Latinx writers are using science fiction, fantasy, and digital culture to explore migration. His study, The Latinx Files, Race, Migration, and Space Aliens, was released through Rogers University Press in 2021. His research is intertwined with his work as an editor and translator of fiction anthologies. He is the editor of Latinx Rising, an anthology of Latinx science fiction and fantasy, and the co-editor of the collection Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, both with The Ohio State University Press. To learn more about Matthew David Goodwin, you can visit www.latinxarchive.com. You can also find the books we mentioned in the links I will leave in the transcript. However, before we dive into the interview, I wanted to clarify that Mr. Goodwin mentions Proposition 187. So, for those who don't know what that is, I decided to research a little bit about it, and I copied this information on it from the website Library of Congress Research Guides. So here's what I found about Proposition 187. On November 9, 1994, California's voters passed Proposition 187, also known as the Save Our State Referendum, a ballot initiative proposed by anti-immigrant organizations, which restricted undocumented immigrants from the state's public services, including access to public education and health care. In addition, the proposition directed teachers and healthcare professionals to report any individuals suspected of being undocumented to the Immigration and Naturalization Services, INS, or the California Attorney General. Lack of guidelines on how to suspect if someone was undocumented led many to argue that Proposition 187 would target and profile individuals who possessed certain physical attributes categorized as foreign. The website continues, Proposition 187 was approved during a turbulent period of economic recession in California, urging many citizens to view undocumented immigrants as scapegoats. Upon the proposition's passage, Governor Pete Wilson advocated for the referendum's immediate implementation, ordering healthcare facilities and school districts to deny services to undocumented individuals. Several organizations promptly challenged the proposition. But the story does not end there. The website continues telling us that, a few weeks from the referendum's passage, a federal judge ruled an injunction against Proposition 187 until a legal review could be executed, leading to disputes between each side and demonstrations in California's colleges and universities. Ultimately, the state could not enact Proposition 187 after courts found it unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects any individual regardless of citizenship status. The proposition lost influence after California's economic boom during the late 1990s, but other states, including Arizona, have introduced similar proposals. 
Well, there you have it. We are learning a little bit more about the love and hate relationship that this historic nation of immigrants has with the immigrants of today. Although if we look at humanity's history, every time a country goes through bad economic times, blame and distrust of minorities and violence against them increases because it is easier to unite people around hatred against what is different than to accept that government measures, the economy, and future planning has failed. That's why we need literature, friends, because it helps us develop critical thinking. All right, let's talk to Matthew David Goodwin. Thank you so much for being here today. And we're going to just jump right in. And what I want to know from you is how did you arrive to Latino, Latina, science fiction, fantasy literature? Tell us the story. Thank you, Carolina. Uh, Very nice for you to invite me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of different origin points where you could start with the story. But you had mentioned that I studied philosophy, and that's a, that's a place to start. So, yeah, my, my undergraduate degree is in philosophy, and then I studied philosophy, religion, theology. At that time, I was in Berkeley, California, and I sort of got turned on by the uh, activism going on uh, around Proposition 187, uh, which was a, a law against undocumented immigrants using certain governmental funds or going to school. And it seemed a really cruel kind of law. And and that sort of got me thinking a lot about uh, migration. And at the same time, I was was studying uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein. He's a philosopher who, in some ways, is a kind of anti-philosopher and uh, tries to look outside of that particular field. And so uh, there were these two kind of uh, influences coming in. And so I really, I shifted to doing uh, a work in nonprofit uh, world. And so I worked with uh, Catholic Immigration Services for about 10 years. And there I'm, I'm working with immigrants, mostly from Mexico, Central America, um, but from all over. And at the same time, I was also getting interested in literature and began to read more Latino literature. But there was a kind of strange thing that was happening. I was not seeing in the literature what I was experiencing in the community. And there was a there was some kind of disjunction. Something was off. I began to think about like, you know, Kafka and very much Kafka would explain what was going on better than other work than works of Latino literature about, you know, uh, urban experience and gangs and drugs. And it, it really had nothing to do with the people that I was talking to. So I, I began to think in that direction. It's like, okay, so there's something, if you want to get at this experience, you have to get at it from a different angle because it's, it's not, it's so strange and bizarre and absurd. And, you know, where you're, you're suddenly your, your whole family can be picked up by the government and taken away. You know, that's, that's not a, that wasn't appearing in Latino literature. That is Kafka, you know. 
So I went to graduate school to study Latino literature, and I was getting into that. And I was sort of looking around and, and finding little threads, and a lot of it led to Latin America. Although I'm not a Latin Americanist, I was looking at Mexico, Puerto Rico, Argentina, Cuba, different places where there was a strong science fiction and, and fantasy tradition, you know, deep and long and, you know, centuries old. So that sort of helped, you know, making those, those connections and then looking in the U.S. and see what was going on here. Eventually, I wrote my dissertation on the on the topic, science fiction in the U.S. Latinos, uh, Puerto Rico, Mexico, uh, primarily, and looking at migration. And out of that process, you know, really going into that topic, I came out of that thinking there. I know there's other people who are interested in this topic. And I also, I want to sort of pass that on a bit, but there is no anthology. There is no resource for people uh, in the U.S. Now, there, were, there are resources for Latin America, and those have been around for a while, and that's sort of been charted a bit more. But at the time, no one really had been charting, you know, U.S. Latinx literature that was science fiction or fantasy in general. Magical realism, yes. That had been discussed in, in academia for a while. And in fact, that was kind of part of the problem is that any sort of work of literature that sort of came along that was a little different or postmodern or something, it, it immediately got thrown into magical realism category, which is a problem, you know, because there you're sort of like connecting US Latinx literature too closely to Latin America. They, they are connected. They're deeply connected, and there's a constant back and forth. But there are experiences in the U.S. that people have that are distinct, and those appear uh, in the literature. And, and so this, for me, was a problem. You know, so I, I started thinking about genre and, you know, what does it mean to think about Latinx science fiction as a separate genre? And, you know, there's a lot of questions in that regard. Because, you know, you don't want to you don't want to separate out Latinx science fiction permanently from Latinx literature. It's part of it. And then at the same time, Latinx science fiction is science fiction. You know, so it, you don't want to separate it out uh, from that tradition as well, especially since many of the authors are directly responding to the tradition. So for me, you know, these kind of like subgenre, Latinx science fiction or Latinx fantasy, they're kind of like goggles that you put on for a little while, you know, like a lens. You put on for a little while, you see it, and then it allows you to see certain things about the works uh, that you're talking about and also put uh, different works in dialogue that were not in dialogue before. And then, you, you know, you take off the goggles and, okay, fine, Latinx literature, science fiction literature, they can go back to their normal genres. So that's a little bit about how I started thinking about that particular genre. Uh, so I started going down the road of creating an anthology, and I, I was not in publishing. I'm still not in publishing. I'm an academic and, uh, you know, part of the community, and I have my personal interest in the topic. Um, but I'm not connected to any of the big publishing centers. So what that meant is that we weren't 
you know, the, the presses I was looking at, we weren't going to get a whole lot of money for the authors. You know, I didn't need to make money, but it was important that the authors, you know, get paid okay. So, you know, I decided to do a Kickstarter, uh, which is a whole experience and, and pretty um, uh, terrifying in many ways. Um, because, you know, you get, you get all the money, you know, you're raising the money, but you get all of it or nothing. And so that, that's, that's pretty tense. So we did a Kickstarter and got money for the authors, but in some ways, equally important, we connected to this audience that was growing and people who had been waiting for something like this. And that for me was so, really so satisfying, you know, connecting to the people that, that I wanted to connect to, you know, through this uh, fundraising event. There I saw sort of where this could go in terms of like creating a community. So it took a while. Finally, the book came out. We got a lot of positive feedback. Um, and again, the people that were looking for this book, you know, or had been sort of thinking about the possibility, they got the book and then, you know, they, they were interested. The whole thing was about creating some kind of community around this that was in person, online, in a variety of different formats, uh, readers, academics, um, young people, old people, all, all different kinds of people. And so that, that was really, really amazing. And actually, a lot of the authors who sent in submissions but didn't get into it, I invited them to call me and talk and, about their work. That, for me, was, I think most people don't like to reject uh, works that are sent to them. I mean, you want to you get the best stuff. But but also you don't want to reject people and you know that people take it personally. So it's it's difficult. So my my way of dealing with that was to talk to the people and, you know, that kind of puts you on the spot. But for me, it was really important. And actually, one of the uh, people who who did call me, she ended up in the second anthology, uh, which was kind of cool. So Latinx Rising came out. Meanwhile, I was doing my own study of uh, the field, which weirdly enough, probably half of the works that I talk about in my study, the Latinx files, are from Latinx Rising. So it's a little bit tricky in terms of being objective. I tried try to be on some level objective to a certain degree, um, at least, you know, have some sort of critical distance. And there's that attempt. But Ultimately, this is a, a project that I'm deeply involved in on multiple levels, you know, and I was, you know, translating some of the works that that are in the anthology and then that I talk about um, critically. So it, it's all sort of wrapped up together. So the Latinx Files uh, came out and that was focused on the space alien, which for me was something that I was interested in exploring. It's a really tricky kind of figure because it can be kind of easily misunderstood and it has lots of different meanings and many of them are very like racist and xenophobic, you know, and anti-immigrant and, you know, so I wanted to kind of take that figure and see what we could do with it and see what writers, Latinx uh, writers, science fiction writers uh, were doing with it. And they weren't just new writers, you know, this goes back to Gloria Anzaldúa Writers who, you know, you might not think about who, that are into science fiction, but in particular, Gloria Anzaldúa, she was deeply into science fiction. 
a couple of uh, space alien kinds of stories. And a lot of her thinking was wrapped up around uh, science fiction, futurism, you know, the future of Chicana communities in the U.S. It, it turned out to be a really fun book to write because I, I, I was able to connect to these canonical writers, um, but also new writers, writers who are coming up now. So that, that, was, that was really exciting. That came out with Rutgers uh, recently. And then the other part is that out of making Latinx Rising, I realized that there were a lot of writers who were doing young adult fiction. And that was not something that I had training in or felt like I was competent in. And also, I felt like it was important that Latinx Rising was not young adult or children's literature. You know, sometimes science fiction fantasy can get get kind of pigeonholed as for children uh, or for young people. And Latinx Rising is definitely not for young people. It is uh, in parts very graphic. And, but I realized that there's a lot of energy around young adult fiction and, you know, I should follow it and see what happens. And even though I, I didn't have that competence, I sort of went down that rabbit hole and so I contacted Alex Hernandez, who's in Latinx Rising, and then Sarah Rafael uh, Garcia, who works with Speculative Fiction. And so we sort of teamed up and, and created Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, uh, which is an anthology that uh, came out recently with Ohio State University Press. And that one is, it, it's interesting because it, it's sort of conceived as a young adult anthology. But... At the same time, it really is just a general Latinx speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy kind of anthology, because I felt like in some ways we don't really need to make it very different from, from a, a normal adult anthology. It, it can just be a regular <laughs> anthology. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the protagonists are young. But other than that, for me, it was important to not like have like dumbed down literature for young people. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, the anthology is one that really anyone can enjoy. It's, it's for young adult, adult, anyone. Yeah. So that is the um, uh, Latinx Rising and then the Latinx Files and then Speculative Fiction for Dreamers. And uh, I am sort of planning a, a third anthology uh, with Alex Hernandez, uh, Not Your Poppy's Utopia. And that is still in the beginning uh, phase planning. So we're not, we're not there yet, but um, that one's going to be looking at kind of like alternate utopias and not utopias per se and not dystopias, but something sort of like in the middle where, where things have been improved in certain uh, regard. And then finally, recently I've been planning a, a conference um, at the University of New Mexico uh, with the Chicana Studies Department and uh, the uh, Southwest uh, Hispanic Institute. This is bringing mostly academics who are interested in uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, apocalyptic uh, fiction uh, together uh, and talk about the theories, methodologies, and that, that whole field. But, you know, we're also, we'll have artists and authors and different kinds of workshops. And, you know, like 10 years ago, you couldn't have had this, this kind of uh, conference where you have so many people, you know, a three-day conference with all sorts of stuff going on constantly. 
could not have happened 10 years ago. So really, this is a a field that has rapidly grown in a really cool way. And, and there's a lot of camaraderie and teamwork and people sort of supporting each other in this work. This is not the work of one person. You know, this is like lots of different people coming together and in different ways and uh, different different forms. Uh, so that is planned for uh, March 2023. So that's, you know, a little bit a ways away. And we're, we're sort of doing early planning to kind of make sure we get uh, some funding. That's sort of where, you know, things have come. And, you know, I'm still doing my own uh, research and, you know, working with students on this uh, topic. And it's it's very exciting. I don't see it, it waning anytime soon. Uh, I think it's going <laughs> to just get bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. I just have one follow-up question since you already kind of talked about the books and the projects you have uh, coming up, of all the stories that you have read and may perhaps published or not yet published um, in the books you mentioned, is there one that stands out and you, you see it as in this can be a movie? This could be in theaters and could be like a really cool or, or Netflix series. Uh, aye, aye, aye. <laughs> I know it's, it's tough because you probably love all of them, but maybe there's one that is popping in your head that says, yeah, maybe this one could be a, you know, a movie or Netflix series. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I am like super not connected to any like TV or anything like that film, like Hollywood world, <laughs> I'm obviously not like in any way, like, connected to that at all. But I have had some producers contact me with just sort of like, in a way, asking the same question that you're asking. You know, what what's going on in the field? Is there, you know, where can you point me to? And typically I just say, well, you know, look at Latinx Rising. And now I'll say, look at, you know, speculative fiction for dreamers. Uh, because, you know, at least that's a place to start. And the other part is that there are a number of writers now not 10 years ago, but now, who are working with big publishers. And so they, I know that they are working on the television movie bit, you know. So if, if there's going to be like a TV series or a film that sort of goes big in the Latinx speculative fiction world, yeah, I think it'll come from the, these authors who are working with the bigger publishers. But on the other hand, you never know. And I know that my, I only mentioned this because he's, you know, my co-editor, uh, Alex Hernandez, he, I know he was working with a production company on his, one of his stories, Caridad, which is in Latinx Rising, which definitely has that kind of, you know, it's a, a young protagonist and really interesting kind of AI situation where like an AI is implanted in her mind and she sort of connects to her family from you know Cuba, the Miami, all across the world through this AI, it's very you know so it's it, it's using technology to express the extended family of the Caribbean, you know. So for me, that that one would be really cool to see, and I only say it because he's he's the co-editor. But like you say, I do love them all. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have chosen them, and I should I should mention. In Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, there is three editors, three co-editors, uh, Alex, Sarah, and I. 
And it was one of the most wonderful experiences, uh, really, and not just editing of anything, you know, because we all, uh, it, it was three people, and you never know what's going to happen. But it turned out what that we all were sort of on the same page. We basically picked the exact same stories. We really had a wonderful kind of uh, experience doing that. But apart from that, we'll see, you know, is there going to be a, a, a Latinx Black Panther coming up? Probably at some point, pretty soon, you know. I know there's Blue Beetle, a superhero film that will come out, I think, you know, in the, in, in the next year. Um, that's with DC. I guess there's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of interest in horror. And there's actually a lot of interest coming from academia as well. So we'll see where that goes. But in terms of predicting the next the next TV or, or movie, I, I can't say. Yeah. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> okay. So, Matthew, thank you so much for sharing all your stories, of how you got to Latinx and fantasy um, science fiction literature, uh, for teaching us so much and for encouraging us to check the books. We definitely have to read them all. I, I already have them, and that's part of my Christmas reading. That's going to be it. And um, I'm pretty sure we're going to be hearing some of those stories in the program next year in 2022. And so all I got to say is thank you, Matthew, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. As a fan of science fiction movies and television series, I always expect the cast to be racially diverse. But today, more and more, I also look for the production and original idea to have a Latino or Latina leading. The time has come for Latin Americans to make our voices heard, to vote, and to have a leading role in the real and imagined future. From this interview, I also want to emphasize that speculative literature, also known as science fiction and fantasy, is not children's literature. It is narratives with which one can explore with greater flexibility such sensitive issues as immigration, the uprootedness of not knowing where you belong, the deterioration of the environment, and, in general, the future of humanity. This New Year's Eve, I encourage you to check out the books Matthew mentioned, Latinx Rising, Latinx Files, and Speculative Fiction for Dreamers. And in this way, support other voices and connect with younger generations. To close the episode, the season, the year 2021, and say goodbye to Tres Cuentos, I will leave you with a rather comforting poem by the Mexican Amado Nervo. As I told you at the beginning of the season, changes are coming, and one of them is the name of the show and some aspects of the format. But all this and more will be revealed with the arrival of the new year, because as we say in my country, Año Nuevo, Vida Nueva. New Year, New Life. In Peace As I approach my sunset, I bless you, life. For you never gave me any failed hope, neither unjust work, nor undeserved punishment because I see 
at the end of my rough road that I was the architect of my own destiny. That if I extracted the honeys or the bitterness from things, it was because in them I put eyes or tasty honeys. When I planted rose bushes, I always harvested roses. True, my vitality will be followed by winter, but you did not tell me that May was eternal. I certainly found the nights of my sorrows long, but you did not promise me only good nights, and instead I had some holy serene ones. I loved, and I was loved. The sun caressed my face. Life, you owe me nothing. Life, we are at peace. And that is all for today. In 2022, the program will come back with the stories of those Latino-Latina descendants who have made the United States their home. Happy holidays, and may the universe fill you with good adventures, love, peace, and of course, good stories, good cuentos, and money. Why not? Until the next cuento or story. Adios, adios. Tres Cuentos Podcast is produced with support from PRX and the Google Podcasts Creator Program. Tres Cuentos is an exercise of creative writing, researching, and retelling. Today's special thanks go to Alexa Jeffress, Valentina Ortiz, and Matthew David Goodwin. Remember that you can listen to Tres Cuentos in any podcast app, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iVox, or wherever you found us listed. Also, check our website, www.trescuentos.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, consider subscribing to our newsletter through our website and sharing the episodes with your friends. The music and sound effects were downloaded from the YouTube audio library and freesound.org. The list of credits per song can be found in the transcript. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios. Adios.